welcome to the Astoria Filmmakers Podcast or the AFC Podcast. Uh, my name is Victoria Fragnito. I'm here with my co-host Jim. I'm not going to do the joke. Go ahead, introduce yourself. Say hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. <laughs> uh, I'm here as well. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to chat about some animated movies. We're going to talk about anime, specifically Ghost in the Shell from 1995, which was suggested to us by our day player today, Clay Clement, who is a filmmaker and videographer. He's gonna to talk to us about his project, The New Normal, which has to do with coronavirus, COVID-19, and everyone's different perspectives and their new normal about it. Um, it's going to be a series, which is kind of cool. It's like a docu-series about that. And then we're gonna talk about some current events, uh, things that are currently going on. It seems like every time we look for current events, we find exactly three, because- yeah just not that much happening during this quarantine uh but still stuff is going on the world is moving forward bit by bit um we're also going to talk about i forgot anime <laughs> anime yes that's what we're going to talk about anime i've never been super into anime i've seen some of it i think it's because it's usually uh subtitled Mm. And that's oftentimes for me, when I watch something, I'm looking for the visual aspect of it. Uh, and it takes away from it if I have to read the whole time. Um, but I do enjoy some of it. Like, it depends on what it is. So if it, honestly, I prefer dubbed so I can just watch it and visualize it and not have to like read and then also look up. Because I feel like I'm always like reading and then looking up. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, like for today, example, when I watched Ghost in the Shell, I watched the the original Japanese subtitled version. Um, I used to watch some anime when I was uh, younger. There was, I think you're a little young for this, Jim, but there was um, a couple hours block of time right after school on Cartoon Network called Toonami. Yeah, I was not too young for that. I okay, was, I wasn't I was sure. Right I wasn't sure when they stopped age. doing that. Come on now, Toonami was my shit. <laughs> so, Toonami, I would get home from school with my brother and we would watch um, Reboot, which was not anime. That was a, a, a story about the um, AI inside video games. Um, it was actually a really good show. Then we watched Sailor Moon, because I loved Sailor Moon, I was obsessed. And then we watched Dragon Ball Z because my brother was obsessed and I actually enjoyed it too. Um, but I think I, I only stuck with it for a couple of years, but I, I loved it. I was obsessed with Sailor Moon and that season of Dragon Ball Z that I watched, I loved. Um, and I don't think I realized at the time that how drastically they change anime for American audiences because a lot of the themes in Sailor Moon about like lesbian relationships among certain uh, Sailor Scouts uh, was definitely changed uh, a lot. Um, and yeah, it tends to happen a lot with anime. I feel like sometimes things happen, like for instance, Pokemon, which is that considered an anime? I'm not sure if, or if it's just a cartoon. Um, considered anime? I don't know, I'm not, I am not, um, um, I, what is it a professional anime yeah. watcher so i don't know <laughs> i i if a professional anime watcher was a job i'm sure people would be hunting for it oh yeah um so when there was an episode of pokemon i think it was the butterfree episode the pokemon butterfree which was basically a butterfly because they ran out of names um this 
episode, like there was a lot of different flashing lights and colors and it gave like hundreds of people seizures. So that was an obvious reason to change an episode. Yeah, if you look it up, it's like it gave hundreds of people seizures when they watched it and they realized that, oh, there's a bunch of people out there that are epileptic in specific ways that this episode really honed in on, uh, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I mean, I understand adapting. It's different to adapt to like not give people seizures as opposed to adapting to just tell the story to a different type of audience. Yeah. Uh, so obviously American audiences are looking for something specific. Well, um, I, think, I think also like, especially because anime and it's on like Toonami on Cartoon Network and stuff, it's geared towards kids. So there's all of those yeah. like, you know, especially when we were younger, you know, being gay is fine. Just don't force it on my children and all that stupid stuff um so for the 90s weren't they a better time no um <laughs> i remember i never watched toonami after school because mm -hmm. i wasn't allowed to watch television during the week growing up weirdly enough yeah uh so i would wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning and on my 13 inch television on like two volume, I would sit right in front of it. It would be right here. I would watch the Dragon Ball reruns mm. because that's all I could get before my parents woke up and came in and were like, you need to get up for school, six o'clock in the morning. And I could sneak in that one half an hour. I also watched the show Zoids, which that was an anime. Remember that one? It's, basically, it's basically Power Rangers, mm. but they're not like fighters mm. it was like power rangers but like a little worse and they had all these like they all just had like giant robot things like there was a robot tiger and a robot like falcon yeah just giant robot animal fights i was into it i don't know and then they came out with all the toys that you like you get it and you build it yourself i had a bunch of those cheap little plastic have you seen the series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us? I have not. Sounds interesting. Oh, it's so good. It actually plays right into this because one of their episodes is talking about the Power Rangers, which originally came over from a series from Japan that got um, adapted to an American audience. Um, and they talk about how, the, how influential the toys were in and continuing the series they literally would adjust episodes and adjust the series to make sure that they had things in it that they could adapt to toys so that they oh, would yeah. sell they, they, i remember there was a whole thing about and i mean i was probably too young to really get the full behind the scenes uh concept of it but when i was younger i was like why did tommy become the green ranger i don't get it and then the white ranger and he kept changing costumes and getting new gear and getting swords and i was in my head i was like it's cool but i don't understand why mm -hmm. and then i think as i got older i realized it's because the studio wants to sell an action figure of the white ranger and an action figure of the green ranger and make money on both of them because yep. if you make it people will buy it mm -hmm. um and they should because the green ranger is fucking badass and <laughs> i'm waiting for saban to make the sequel to the new Power Rangers movie for all that it was. It was kind of fun. I had a lot of fun watching that. I didn't watch it, but I did watch, there was, I think an unauthorized 
fanfic kind Even of better that was yes that was so good that was with um was it james van vanderbeek i don't remember exactly but it was basically probably the biggest fan film ever made mm -hmm. in terms of i can't think of one that has better production value and better acting but this it's fan so film good. power rangers was brutal it was bloody um rangers were getting murdered um like zordon was like it was a whole thing it was it was okay. really dark and intense and everyone was super hyped up because they thought that's what the reboot was going to be like yeah and it wasn't quite like that it was more pointed towards kids and obviously they wanted to be really action-packed and big mm -hmm. and it was uh it wasn't like the r-rated dark gritty power rangers that some people wanted so there was some disappointment there Mm -hmm. uh, but that actually brings up another interesting topic of fan films. Uh, I myself have been working on a fan film for Star Wars for a very long time, but the question always arises when I tell people about it, how are you going to do that without Disney coming to you and saying, hey, here's a lawsuit? Yeah. Um, so it's really, it really comes down to if you're going to make money on it, you can't yeah. <laughs> because Disney wants their cut. If you're doing it just because you love Star Wars, and you put the project out there, or any Disney property, or any other copywritten property, if you make a fan film, it has to be with a, just a true love of the film, all out of pocket, and you don't make a dime from it. There's mm. no profit involved. It's just a fan film. They did that for, remember Tom Jane, when he played the Punisher? Yes. When John Travolta was the villain. Mm -hmm. uh, so Tom Jane played the Punisher, and it was very that was not a great movie but it got this like cult following to it i loved that movie i thought it was cool um like eight years later tom jane revived the character in this fan film where it's just him and he walks into a laundromat and he's like talking to this guy in a wheelchair and he's just trying to do his laundry and it's just tom jane so you don't know what it is you don't know that he is the punisher he's frank castle and this like gang or cartel people or something, I don't remember exactly, but they pull up and they're outside and they're harassing people. And the guy in the wheelchair kind of like convinces him to go out and basically murder all these people, or I'm sorry, punish them because he's the punisher. So they're doing all these bad things. So he walks out and there's all these guys have like guns and machetes and stuff. He walks out with a bottle of Jack Daniels in a brown paper bag and he murders all of them <laughs> with a bottle of Jack Daniels. Like he hits one guy with it and then he hits another guy with it and then he shatters it off of someone else's head and then he stabs the guy in the face. He kills like 18 people. And then as he's driving away, he like gets into his truck and he's driving off and he his shirt like got ripped or something or he pulls off his shirt or no he goes back into the laundromat that's what it is and he pulls his shirt out of the laundry and it's a punisher t-shirt with like the logo and everything and everyone goes oh it's a fan film for punisher oh my god <laughs> uh but that was so cool and the coolest thing about it the weirdest thing about it was he made that with the original filmmakers who made the punisher movie with him um, and they all did it. They all banded together. I don't know who funded it or how they got money for it, but the only reason they were able to do it without talking to Marvel was because they treated it like a fan film and that they weren't going to profit off of it at all. It was just for fun. Mm. Uh, and when you're a rich film,
filmmaker celebrity, you probably can afford to do that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, when you are an indie filmmaker with almost no budget, it's really hard to get away with it. Sometimes you can, you can, you can make a fan film. A lot of Star Wars fan films I've noticed, uh, they end up just being lightsaber fights in the woods, <laughs> which, you know, is really cool. And you can put a lot of really cool choreography into it mm -hmm. and find somebody who's really good with special effects, rope them into it. Uh, but when it comes to actually telling stories or roping in certain characters that are copywritten, like you just can't put Darth Vader in your fan film. You just can't do it. They'll, they'll come at you hard. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's all, it's all tough because sometimes too, if you contact Disney or whatever company or Saban specifically, because they did that Power Rangers fan film, because mm -hmm. um, Saban actually brought it up pretty, pretty hard that they said, we don't want this film to exist. Uh, so they actually caused a whole big uproar in trying to shut down fan films in general. So basically they were going to crack down on people being able to make fan films because, and I see their perspective too. It sucks because you want to see creativity from all aspects and all levels. Uh, but when this really awesome dark gritty reboot for Power Rangers came out, it put the expectations really high. And then Saban was like, oh, well we have a, we have a seven out of 10 movie. <laughs> it's a pretty good, mm -hmm. but we're not quite going to R rated dark gritty. So yeah. the expectations were messed with and it affected the box office, I'm sure. If that reboot fan film never existed and Power Rangers just came out, it might have done a lot better. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time because people people who are involved in fandoms just they're so they're so devoted. <laughs> so devoted so it's it just it breaks my heart when like things like that get shut down or you can't do yeah. them i mean you can tell my devotion i just dived into it for 20 straight minutes about star wars and power rangers because i'm a huge nerd <laughs> um you are not alone i'm not alone and you're not alone <laughs> yes there's a lot of nerds out there with me on this. Uh, I wish I could make a Star Wars fan film. I've actually written one. Uh, it's a really fun project about a father and a son uh, who are also master and Padawan. And I wanted to mess with that relationship because the father in the beginning of the film treats his son as if he's his Padawan, not his son. He, mm -hmm. it's, it's like Padawan first, then his son. And then the Padawan treats his father like he's his father but not his master. So he's, he's rebellious and he does what he wants and his dad tells him to do things. He doesn't take it too seriously. And over the course of the film, they both realize that they have to kind of find a better balance for that relationship because it's a very weird relationship in Star Wars. There's not really a father-son duo like that. Um, and I wanted to kind of play with those relationships and have it really be a super grounded, gritty story about finding that but it's hard to do that in Star Wars because you immediately, as soon as you hear Star Wars, you think spaceships and lasers. And uh, it's all about whether, how are you going to make it the, to the scale of what Star Wars normally is? So that's the struggle. I mean, and then it becomes, can I do this without LucasArts or Disney coming at me? Right. So well, what about that series that you introduced me to where it's, it's like a death battle between random fictional characters? 
Yeah, uh, uh, super superhero beatdown, I believe it is. Uh, the company behind it is called Bat in the Sun. They get away with it, I believe, because they basically pit two characters against each other. So one of them is Darth Maul versus Spider-Man. What if they fought? And they base it completely around people's reactions. So they go to like comic book stores or they go to Comic-Con and they ask a hundred people who would win in a fight. And if 68 people say Darth Maul would win and can't do math, 32 people say Spider-Man would win then they make it so that Darth Maul would eventually win this fight. And they then they film a live action version of that fight. And it's awesome and they have special effects and they do everything. You know, that's fan films right there. That's, I don't know how they get away with it. They must find a way because it's out there. Because the one that, that um, I've watched most recently is the one where Batman goes into space to right. fight Darth Vader. That's plausible. It's as, awesome as it sounds <laughs> there's actually two endings to that by the way if you have seen darth vader and batman fight there's one where darth vader wins and then there's one where batman wins they filmed two endings because it was so close it was like 51 to 49 percent or something like that how is that possible first of all first of all i get batman is good but if spider-man can beat him which is a different series of this kind of thing um, there was a death battle where they put Spider-Man against Batman and they, they deep dive into like the science behind their powers and the logistics of their limitations and all of that. But if I'm referencing this and Spider-Man beat him, then someone who uses the force could definitely beat him. So I'd, I'd have to watch that. Well, I never understood that too, because I immediately, when I think of Star Wars, obviously you think of what happens in the movies. But I think, oh, if I have telekinesis, I'm just going to go like this and crush someone's heart in their body. And then they're done. It's I mean, okay. he chokes people all the time. Yeah, you just choke, you just force choke people. Batman, you know, throws smoke pellets in your face. The, the point is, Batman's always prepared for a fight. Uh, the one thing that made me laugh during this live action fight between Batman and Darth Vader was Darth Vader's coming at him with his quintessential red lightsaber. And Batman just pulls out a blue lightsaber where did you get that, bro? You're from Earth. You've never fought a Jedi or a Sith before. How did you know? But then the all-around argument for how did he have a lightsaber is, well, he's Batman. He's always prepared. That's it. He's Batman. That's all you need to know. He's a formidable al um, opponent. I will absolutely cop to that 100%. I don't think he would win against Darth Vader. <laughs> no, I think the original, uh, the original one was Batman and Darth Vader fight and Darth Vader wins. And I think after a while, I think after a little bit, they were like, let's just, let's also film what if Batman won. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, th I don't remember it specifically how it happened, but it was pretty cheap because in the end, Batman's trying to, he comes in like with a spaceship and he shoots Darth Vader directly. And Darth Vader just blows up his ship with the Force, pulls him close to him, and then just snaps his neck with the Force, if I remember right. I believe yeah. the alternate ending, Batman just, like, stabs him before he kills him or something. I don't know. But it was kind of cheap, and it was done last second. But people wanted to make that happen. Um, yeah. I mean, I want to see Batman fight Darth Vader more. Can you <laughs> more? Because that was great. 
Uh, but Bat in the Sun is really doing some awesome stuff. I actually spoke with the guy who runs it very briefly years ago because when I, when I saw some of these videos, it was like Wolverine versus Wonder Woman, uh, Master Chief from Halo versus Captain America. I was just like, cool, how do I get on this team? Because I need to start working on these. Uh, and the struggle was years ago was that I just moved to New York and they were like, oh, we're in LA. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. But, uh, you know, they're pretty cool. They're doing these things and they're somehow able to get away with doing it, you know, with all the copyright issues that they have. Um, there's limitations, but there's also obviously some way to get around it. So for those of you out there trying to make fan films, you still can find a way. Use that creativity. Just make sure you do it legally and please don't get sued. <laughs> um, so it's hard to segue back because there's no segue, but let's get back into uh, our day player, Clay Clement. He brought a clip along uh, for The New Normal, and it's basically his episode. We're going to watch just about half of it, and then we're going to bring on Clay, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about it. My name is uh, Clay Clement. My family and I are from an area called Orange County in uh, New York. I would say around late January, once this started spreading around and how quickly it seemed to start moving to different nations and countries is when I felt it was going to be a lot bigger. Orange County is located around an hour and a half north of New York City. So when the virus was confirmed in the city, it wasn't long before it spread up north. As of April 27th, there are now more than 8,000 confirmed cases and just under 300 dead. Did you decide that you had to take any sort of precautions to prepare for this? Susan and I had discussed things before uh, COVID-19 really hit the United States. We went out, well, she went out and got a bunch of non-perishable goods that we could have and uh, a few days after that we went to one of the wholesale clubs around here and we got well toilet paper a huge thing of uh, toilet paper and a bunch of other non-perishables and necessities we figured we would need including like say toothpaste or mouthwash what made you think that was something you needed to stock up on instead of just going out and getting it when you need it one of the things that I noticed was COVID-19 was spreading pretty quickly and as soon as it hit the United States and it was being played off that it was no big deal, it was quite obvious it was a big deal because this thing was moving fast. It wasn't some slow moving thing that wasn't moving around, but it was getting to other nations and countries really quickly. So in that essence, I felt that we needed to uh, move on this before people kind of went crazy on uh, buying things at the uh, stores. Can you tell us how, since this whole COVID-19 pandemic has started, how it's affected you and your family on a daily routine? Well, for one of the things, instead of uh, my daughter getting up and going to school on the bus, she's now homeschooled. Thankfully, where we're at, the school district has a lot of things to do this online a lot of resources so the teacher 
post the stuff on there and I just help her go through it, the math, the English and whatnot. And in that sense, I've become sort of a teacher to her as well for all the new material that she's learning. And thankfully this will help her be able to uh, progress to the next uh, grade, of course. My name is Ashley. How has it felt adjusting throughout all of this, doing the schoolwork at home? I sort of like it, but once they started introducing times, I really, like, it was hard for me. So learning new material has been difficult. Yeah, learning the new stuff on the computer has been hard. My parents have been very helpful about learning the new material. With everything that's been going on before you ended up getting homeschooled, did they talk about coronavirus at school? Just the kids and the kids on the bus. Now when everything was going to happen and school was being closed down, how did it make you feel? I didn't really like it because I knew I'd miss my friends and the teachers. Did you miss going to school in general? How have you been dealing, do you feel, with everything going on and having to pretty much just stay home? I don't really like it besides being with my parents. I like that part, spending more time with my parents. Do you get frustrated with your parents while being cooped up at home? For my wife working, she also took off starting March 16th. She took off for three weeks from work to stay home primarily. Thankfully, we're financially stable enough where she's able to do that. She tried working for four days after the three weeks, but due to the stress and everything else, she took off an extra two weeks on top of that. So starting the week of April 27th, she's going back part-time for the first week of this. Then the next week after, she's going to try to go back full-time at her job. Of course, this will bring complications but we're going to try and handle it the best we can. All right, and we're here with Clay Clement. He's a filmmaker and a videographer, and he's working on a project right now called The New Normal, uh, all about coronavirus and everyone's different new normal in that state. Clay, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yes, I uh, guess the best way to put it is kind of the way you did. It's the new normal for everybody out there. I mean, it is what has become your life with COVID-19 that has been spreading around the world. And uh, this project pretty much is for anyone who wanted to submit some of their footage and whatnot. And now uh, we're doing like 10 minute mini-sodes, I guess you could say, of uh, what is the new normal? I mean, what is my new normal? could be completely different from what you no your new normal is. Yeah, personally, I'm a huge video gamer and I work from home a lot. Uh, my the only thing that's changed right now is I can't book shoots and go out and use my camera. Uh, but besides that, my normal is pretty much the same. Uh, but it's very different for someone like you, and maybe someone like Victoria, who your fiance has uh, cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. So that's a little tricky. Right. High risk human. So he's he was quarantined about a week longer than I was, uh, and then when my job let off. I, I, it's weird being quarantined with someone who is high risk because you have to treat yourself as if you are high risk, but I still 
have to go out and do all the things. So I have to grocery shop. I have to pick up his medication. I have to do all the laundry and stuff. And of course he feels, he feels guilty, which he shouldn't, you know, it's not anything we can help, but you know, it's it, the balance in the, in our relationship and as to who's doing what has definitely shifted because of all of this. And it's, it's, you know, it's weird. I can't imagine how he feels being, he hasn't left the apartment since March. Right. The trick is once it all blows over, convincing him to do the laundry again. <laughs> <laughs> I will have no problem doing that. Get out. <laughs> uh, so Clay, so the idea of the, of the series, it is a series and everybody's going to submit their own footage and their own interviews with themselves uh, during COVID about COVID and their different experiences. Uh, so you're currently looking for people with interesting stories to tell. Is that right? Yes, that is the best way to put it. If you have an interesting story to tell and a unique story, then if uh, you want to get in contact uh, with me or the Story Filmmakers Club, we could uh, would love to hear it and uh, potentially make a video out of it for these episodes. Cool. I mean, not everybody's so versed in camera work and stuff, but I'm sure you guys can, or anybody in the AFC can work with people that are a little bit less experienced with the actual production stuff, because most of it can be kind of filmed uh, on an iPhone, I suppose, and then a lot of it is via editing work and stuff, as long as nobody's filming it, like, right up in their face, or, uh, you know, recording it with bad audio, or someone's making smoothies in the back and the blender's too loud, you know, uh, but I mean, basic stuff like that can be figured out, um, so it really just, it's about the people's stories, everybody's got interesting stories, and this is a good, like, docu-series about all that, uh, have you had any takers yet? Any people interested that have good stories? Uh, well, of course, we have Phil, who is uh, very interested in getting his story told. I have a bunch of his footage. I, I still have to scrub through it. I mean, I was mainly focused on finishing up mine this week and starting to work on his next week. We have one other person, uh, Ravi. Off of the top of my head, yeah, Rafi is his uh, name. So getting in contact with him about getting footage and things into the story he'd like to tell. And uh, we're kind of going from there. Cool. I think it's got to be interesting because you're going to have varying degrees of production value. Oh, well, yes, yes. It's definitely going to have a degree of production value. I mean, after all, we're all kind of just stuck where we are. Mm -hmm. So I'm not looking for, you know, top tier, you know, get the absolute perfect angle on things like that. But uh, just, you know, at least as, if it's clean footage and it sounds good, then we could, should be able to work with it. Yeah, awesome. I mean, too, the opportunity might present itself that when COVID does blow over, inevitably, because we will kick its ass one way or another, um, there's the opportunity to maybe reshoot the interviews. Um, and then take all the extra footage and make the episodes around that and then have some really nice looking interviews uh similar format to everyone's favorite docu-series uh tiger king <laughs> where the interviews are so well filmed uh but then all of the rest of the footage is just trash people getting <sighs> by alligators and hopefully nobody during covid is out there getting eaten by tigers or anything like that i mean i wouldn't put it past 2020 i think 2020 has it out for everybody so i wouldn't be surprised but 2020 is a weird year it's so <laughs> crazy that ufos have been spotted by the pentagon and no one cares yeah nobody had to care at all just another thing and aliens fine whatever <laughs> hey, we got some other crap to deal with that's more important right now we'll get back to that later um 
they're gonna get up with tornadoes getting thrown at us with tigers in them or something. Tiger NATO. Tiger NATO. There we go. There's the next B-rated <laughs> series or movie series coming to you live from the Astoria Filmmakers Club. It's Tiger NATO. I'm sure we Tiger... won't get uh, sued for copyright infringement on that at all. It's no, no, not NATO. at all. Sharknado is very different. Yes. Any similarities to uh, any of the characters between the films is strictly coincidental. Right. As long as you put this... that disclaimer on, you're fine. Yeah. We just also happen to be casting Tara Reid in ours. She's going to play <laughs> both sides of it. Uh, so, Clay, what else are you working on at the moment? Is, I mean, not at the moment, but did you have any other projects that were in the works before or during COVID and now they're kind of on hold or things you're still working on, scripts, anything like that? The only other thing I was actually irony was working and finishing up just before this was the show called Donna's Happy Hour. That was, I was filming at a uh, Port Jervis, side of Port Jervis at the uh, local Access 23 studio. It was, uh, we finished literally the second week of March, the second season. Down to the so, wire. Down to the literal wire. Got home. I was just editing it up and getting it done. And now we're still in talks about, you know, potentially some things being done, you know, for season three and, su and uh, such, but. We don't know, of course, at this time, everything's kind of up in the air. We'll see where Co is going. But right now, it's just, we're planning on like a six-month hiatus regardless. So <laughs> we're, we're kind of okay for the time being, and we'll see where it goes from there. But other than that, I've been messing with computer stuff, and like you, playing games. Yeah, we're, we're gamers. Victoria is a gamer, too. Uh, I bet you finished filming, and you were like, oh, man, I don't know when I'm going to have time to edit this. And then, <laughs> boom. Two days before the episode goes on the local TV, I'm like, crap, get everything edited up. <laughs> Throw it up there now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so talk to us a little bit about Ghost in the Shell. Why is that your movie of choice? Oh, uh, it's one of the best ways to describe Ghost in the Shell, I would have to say, is the blending of the mental gymnastics that kind of go on throughout that movie between am I human with the main character? You know, where does my consciousness come from and where does, where do things actually blur between being a person and being a potential just robot or cybernetic type of organism? Where does that end? How does the matter of soul come into the whole thing when you get everything blended together? Along with, I enjoy the, like, the camera angles. They specifically do the different kind of angles, you know, for the scenes and whatnot to portray different emotions and feelings in uh, that anime film. Yeah, I mean, I got to say I'm not the biggest anime fan myself because most of the time it's not in English. And uh, <laughs> I, I know Victoria watched the Japanese version with subtitles. And I watched the dubbed version in English. So it was much easier for me to take in. But at the same time, anime, a lot of the times, is not in English. And there's a lot of reading. And I don't like reading. I'm all about the visuals. <laughs> good thing, too, that this movie is visually very amazing looking. It's stunning. Some of the shots, mm -hmm. too, are really crazy. Um, and it's crazy because it's animation, and it has that effect on somebody. So... Oh, yeah. That's one of the reasons I definitely would say that's pretty much my favorite film. I mean, they didn't just have one film, too. They had, like, the whole series and things like that. They just had a new one released on Netflix. 
that's uh, CGI for their series. It's just dubbed right now. I said just subbed right now. I mean, they don't have the dubbing fully out yet, so you'd have to wait now, a little. Are you, are you a, an anime fan normally? Is that something that you're really big into, or is this just kind of like a one, like you found this film, you really love this one? No, I like uh, quite a bit in uh, anime, ranging from the original Akira to Veroni uh, uh, Kenshin and uh, Attack of the Attack on Titan, Sword Art Online, and a few others. Claymore was excellent. The ending annoyed me so much, it forced me to go read the manga. I had to find out what really happened for the whole thing. Did you read the the manga for Ghost in the Shell, or did you have you just seen the, the couple iterations that came out film-wise? I've actually only seen the uh, films for Ghost in the Shell. I haven't had any of my hands on any of the mangas. The only ones I really had on that for the mangas before was Ronnie Kenshin and uh, Helsing. Those were fun. Now, how did you feel about the American remake of the live action with Scarlett Johansson? Is that something that you're like vehemently against, or do you feel like it it's its own separate thing? How do you feel about that? I thought it was portrayed pretty well, honestly, <laughs> with how he went about it. The guy himself was already an avid fan of all of Ghost of the Shell, and. Uh, the series and everything else. In fact, I believe the first thing he did when he got the entire cast together, he sat them all down and made them watch the original anime movie. So they understood what they're getting into. I mean, smart move. <laughs> it's yes. good so that, you know, you can see the, the subject material that it comes from. And, and the good thing too with that is it's not like you're watching another portrayal of like a live action version of it so that you're not copying that you know that performance exactly. or, or or that production of it mm -hmm, exactly i mean they had if you, you've seen both of them you would notice there the similarities on some of the scenes and such that he was portraying in it but it was its own thing and that's what the what i really enjoyed about it. Mm -hmm. it it kind of meshed from the original story into its own type of story on how i guess in the live action version matoko kusanagi came to be as the character she was Hmm. I feel like I'm going to have to watch that one now after I've seen the anime. Now I need to go and watch and see what, because I mean, there was obviously the controversy about Scarlett Johansson being cast in the role and all of that. And that's a whole other subject. But, uh, you know, I, after that, I didn't, I didn't hear much about it. I don't know how well it did or, or if it made an impact at all. Um, I'm not sure if I am pretty sure it, it at least broke even. I know that, but, uh, the one major thing I do remember talking with one of my friends years back, she mentioned to me that reading through the manga, the original character, they never mention her ethnicity ever. Mm. So I've, I've seen arguments on both sides of it. Of, yeah. You know, you know, you're taking a role away from, you know, an Asian, uh, an actor of Asian descent um, from a story that is, that what, that did come from an Asian writer. Um, yeah. But then there's also the argument on the other side of the table that the character is a cyborg. There, there's a whole argument and discussion and theme in Ghost in the Shell about identity and sexual identity and then all of that. Um, so it, it kind of blurs the lines as to what that character is. But I think because the character had such um, an ethnic name, everyone assumed, that the character was uh, yeah. supposed to be 
you know, based off of a Japanese representation of, of a human being as a cyborg. But again, that's a really deep conversation that you can get into. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I saw the 2017 remake. I think it was 2017. And it was fun. It was it was weird in a good way. It was a cool sci-fi story. I had fun with it, but um, I don't know that it was necessarily, like, so good that I was like, I can't wait to see the next one. Like, I, I wasn't ready. No, no, it really wasn't kind of like that. It was good for, like I said, the, the kind of the portrayal of what it was with some of the scenes and such like in the anime film and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, it's just like, is there going to be a sequel? Don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I can see too from the studio's perspective where the studio says, oh, we'll give you such and such amount of money to get the movie done. And the filmmakers say, well, we, you know, that's not enough. We need a lot because this is 2029 Japan and there's a lot of futuristic and cybernetics and all these CGI things we need to do. And then they say, well, you need a bigger cast. You need a better actor or someone more well-known so we know it'll make money. And then they say Scarlett Johansson, and they're like, cool, shut up and take my money. And they throw <laughs> money at the, at the people, the filmmakers. Uh, so maybe that's what happened. Who knows? Um, there certainly was quite a bit of controversy. Everyone was saying Scarlett Johansson's next role will be Harriet Tubman. <laughs> and Well, I mean, that's also just because of her controversial comments that she has made about how an actor can be anything and you're limiting them and while I do as an actor I get the point of like being an actor is embodying and, and being something else there's some things about yourself that you cannot change I cannot exactly play an Asian woman I'm not Asian no that's yeah. not no. A thing unless I get really really racist with it which we're not doing so. <laughs> no. I did love Bill Burr did a whole comedy special where he talked about this basically at, at one point and he said, because uh, a lot of people came at Brian Cranston when he played a uh, paralyzed man in a wheelchair. And they said they should have gotten somebody who was already paralyzed. And Bill Burr was like, well, then it's not acting. You're just reading shit that someone wrote down. Brian Cranston is a trained actor. And it's kind of like, you got to find the happy balance in between. Not, ne ne there's never a scenario where everyone's happy all the time no no but i mean the situation like that with brian cranston like you mentioned uh not everyone can act either yeah the they, there's some movies too like i forget what the movie's called i think active valor did it where they had actual navy seals uh or like a seal team or something they were portraying themselves uh and then there was another movie with these three uh army guys that just got off and then the plane was hijacked or something and they took it over and saved everybody they wound up playing themselves in the movie about it yeah that was the one of clint eastwood's many yes that's what it was movies i forget the um, title of it but you know just sometimes yeah i mean the movie i'm sure was great i never saw it but i'm sure they weren't stellar actors you know they're playing themselves. but but the argument on the other side of the table is like what um what is that what is that hockey movie um about um, when America won the gold in like 1980, what is that film called? I'm thinking of a different film. I, I'm not sure what film you're talking the about. The Mighty Ducks. No. <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> I can't remember the name. I will probably think of it as soon as we're done filming the podcast. But it was about the 1980, you know, complete upset and the American gold win. 
Um, and only one of the actors that was on the hockey team was an actor, and that was Eddie Cahill. Everyone else were hockey players that were you then. Talked about uh, Miracle? Yes. 2004, yeah. Miracle. Miracle. The rest of the hockey players were actual hockey players. And they do that a lot, especially for for sports films, because you need someone who has that talent, um, that um, sports talent to actually do it. I know with uh, Ben Affleck's most recent movie where he plays um, a basketball coach, a lot of the kids on the team that he's coaching were not actors, they're basketball players because you need that. Yeah. Um, but I think the argument with like Brian Cranston's situation is like there are, um, you know, differently abled actors. You, and I get you want Brian Cranston because he is an incredible actor and of course he he's amazing. Um, but the argument is there are actors who are wonderful and amazing and actually are that. Yeah. Why no. not? But I get they want the name. They want the notoriety. Exactly. They're chasing the ticket sales. Yeah. And, and I, I get both sides of it. But, you know, it's if you um, but if you want to create a more inclusive environment, then you can just find actors who are good mm -hmm. that actually are those things. Yeah. <laughs> More, more to the effect of uh, accuracy in movies. Um, I think the movie is Act of Valor, where there's actual Navy SEALs playing Navy SEALs. Um, that movie came out, and I think after that, the government and the military started saying, all right, no more of this, because these SEAL team guys are supposed to be very quiet, not really talking about government things and how they operate, because they don't want, it's, it's literally like giving away our secrets. Mm. Um, or at least the military's secrets. So that after that, I think uh, the military stopped letting that kind of happen. Um, active duty, because I know Clint Eastwood's movie, where that was the the men who were on um, they were on leave. I think it was the train. Right. It was the train, right? It was like train to France or something like that, where mm -hmm. they they stopped a hijacking of the train. Um, and I don't know if they were still in active military when they shot the film, but those were actually obviously. Right. I mean, that might've been about the same time period too. I'm really not sure, mm -hmm. but it, at least a couple of years back now, they started to crack down on it because they're trying not to do that. But in terms of accuracy in movies too, there's movies where like you can watch a baseball movie and you see how people are swinging the bat and a baseball person might be like, that guy's bad at baseball. So yeah. It's it's hard because you want to fictionalize things to a degree and tell a great story, which is the core of filmmaking. Uh, but like we said, not everyone's going to be happy all the time. Sometimes you're going to get people that are just picking it apart. Oh, always, always. There was, one, there was someone that uh, watched Parasite and the top rated comment on like Reddit or something was like, oh, in that area that they live, uh, the lights that are above their heads, the fluorescent lights, most bulbs that you can buy over there, they're 60 hertz and not 50 hertz. But the lights are flickering as if they're 50 hertz lights. So the whole movie was ruined for me. And I was like, come on. Please tell me that that was a joke. <laughs> it, it's obviously a joke. But it's also really funny that people are that smart to think weird shit like that. And like how many people kind of thought it was funny enough to upvote it and it was like the most voted on comment or something. It's kind of a point, I guess, to show, you know, again, 
not everyone's going to be happy. People are going to be upset regardless of which way something may go or whatnot. I mean, then there's movies too that uh, like Mulan, when they announced the casting for that, everyone was very happy because they thought they were going to get a similar situation with like Dakota Fanning or Scarlett Johansson to play Mulan or something. And uh, very happy to have a Chinese American actress playing that role, um, which I believe is true because I, I, that's what I heard. Yeah, she's she's Chinese. Is she Chinese American or is she a Chinese? Is she Chinese actress? I thought she was a Chinese actress. Uh, yeah, because there was all that controversy when she came out with the statements about against the, Hong Kong. Yeah, the yeah. Hong Kong police riots or the and the protests. Um, People were not happy with her statement in support of what the Hong Kong police were doing. So there was a little bit of controversy about, you know, how Disney was going to handle a very political statement by one of their leads in an upcoming big budget film. Yeah, yeah. People were throwing fits about it and whatnot. And uh, I mean, I think it's great kind of what they're doing, especially since this is a historical you know, this historically happened. So it's excellent with the things that they're doing. People are coming out being like, you know, oh, they're getting rid of stuff from the original cartoons. Like, that's okay. I'd like to see a kind of historically uh, done, you know, with what actually happened at those times. So that would be kind of a nice way to see it. It'll be a different film, obviously, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, yeah. And like, well, and it's like, you know, with Ghost in the Shell and everything, like, you, when you remake an animated movie, obviously it's live action. You're going to have to change some things. Some things are going to be different. And what I don't like is when they try and make a shot for shot remake of the original one. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Lion King, I still enjoyed Lion King, but I still think the animated version of Lion King is far superior. I oh, that's what I heard. I didn't see it. I haven't seen it. The new Lion King, <laughs> it's really fun. If I it. didn't touch that one, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's visually it's amazing, it's, it's stunning, and I mean, I like Childish Gambino, is Simba, which is fun. Uh, so that was a little different. Beyonce is Nala, so and Seth Rogen is Pumbaa. He's one of the standouts. Billy Eichner is uh, Timon. They're honestly the standouts. Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen, um, but it's sort of just like a weird reimagining reimagination of the same thing. And there are a lot, almost all the shots are almost shot for shot remake. Um, but I think like something, especially with animals that you lose when you try and do live action is um, the emotions that human faces can express and cartoon versions of animals can express. You lose that when you try and put that on um, animals. Yeah, so, yeah. Story, so the stories when you do use live action animals it has to be very specific stories that you're going to tell it doesn't always translate well like jungle book did amazing the live action version of jungle book was you know hailed that was the first one that was also john favreau right and then he did lion king as well mm -hmm. and now he's doing everything that disney ever does because he's <laughs> fantastic he's, i think he did mandalorian as well mm -hmm. he's cranking out the hits well mm -hmm. the mandalorian was excellent i enjoyed that I could do a whole episode on The Mandalorian, and how dare you? You need to watch that immediately. <laughs> on my list. It's on my list. <laughs> you don't even know Baby Yoda at all, huh? Uh, <laughs> I just know Baby Yoda from memes. That's all I know. 
Everyone's on quarantine and they still have too much to watch. Yeah, which is a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> yeah, especially with this podcast, we're definitely getting to watch a bunch of new movies and stuff. I had seen the animated Ghost in the Shell way back when, like years ago. Um, but rewatching it was very cool as well. Um, the idea of having cybernetic enhancements basically made me want a robot hand or something. Like, I just want to have a robot foot run really fast. <laughs> I don't know. If if you guys could have a robot part of your of your body replaced, like robot arm, robot eyes, what would you do? I think I would want I would want robot legs, because then you can run really fast, you can jump really high, jump really far. I was gonna say that because I'm tired all the time, and if I had robot legs, I wouldn't have to worry about that. I just have to be like, Neh, this is all I have to worry about right here. Everything. I wouldn't have to take the subway. I could run anywhere I needed to go. Be good. <sighs> run it like six um, miles an hour. I think mine would be simple. Replace my lungs and heart. Yeah, they don't shut down on you. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, considering I got lung and heart disease, so. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. That's why, was... that's why you've been quarantined from the beginning longer than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, Literally the week before quarantine went into effect, I was at the gym and I was like, this is my last day at the gym and I don't know when I'm coming back. Because wow. <laughs> I could just, you know, calculated what's going on and who's getting, where it's spreading and everything else. I was like, I just can't risk it. I did the same thing back in November. Uh, totally unrelated, but I went to the gym and I said, I don't know when I'm coming back to the gym. <laughs> uh, well, Clay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, talking about the new normal, uh, some of your other film experiences as well. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. And if you want to get in touch with Clay, if you want to join the AFC and get involved with this project, all you got to do is reach out. Uh, we'll put all the links in the description. And yeah, Victoria, any parting words? No, thank you for coming on and sharing everything with us and the work that you're putting in, especially with COVID-19 and all of the fun that it's bringing us and changing for us um it's good to shed a light on how it affects people differently um and thank you for sharing ghost in the shell with us it's definitely not something i probably would have ever watched if it wasn't suggested for the podcast and i really enjoyed it so thank oh, you good i'm glad you enjoyed it and thank you guys for having me on the podcast of course man we'll see you later yep we'll see you later Well, thank you to Clay for coming in and showing us a little bit about his new series, The New Normal, and giving us a suggestion of Ghost in the Shell. So, Ghost in the Shell, Jim, what'd you think? Well, it I, I've seen Ghost in the Shell before, way back when. So rewatching it was, I've already kind of knew a little bit about it, but I didn't really remember it that well. And uh, Let's, let's clarify, too. I watched the dubbed version, so it was in English, and you watched the subtitled Japanese version. Um, I, you know, it's a great movie. It brings up a lot of concepts, and I think in 1995, when it came out, it brought up all these things, and no one was really thinking about those things yet. Uh, the idea of people having cybernetic enhancements was totally straight over people's heads. Um, so just the idea of how much of your, th there was a couple different big ideas that they posed in this movie. Uh, one of them being how many, how much can you replace of yourself cybernetic wise before you're like not human anymore. Mm -hmm. So you get a cybernetic hand and then you get a cybernetic 
eyes and then you get cybernetic legs and uh you know by the time you do all these enhancements when does when do you lose yourself and it also was about identity and you know um but that was the big thing i got from it was almost like you know is your soul you is your body you uh because at, at some point she like her just body was just destroyed and she was just like a soul in a body and then they put her in a new body it was it's a crazy it's a whole different concept mm -hmm. uh what did you think of it um i i really enjoyed it um as you said, I watched the um, subtitled version. I think um, I don't normally have a problem watching things with subtitles. I think, um, you know, what they've said this past year since Parasite uh, won the Oscar, you know, if you can get over those, you know, two inches of dialogue, then you're going to open your world up to so many amazing creative projects. Um, my only, the only drawback I could see from watching this was um one because it was subtitles of kind of foreign concepts you know things proposed in the future and foreign ideas of cybernetics and cyborgs and and a different world where there's section six and section nine and what does that mean and where is everything i think i i i was having a hard time kind of just processing everything in reading, trying to watch the visuals of what's going on and trying to process what they're talking about since it's, you know, foreign things. But, you know, eventually you catch up, you get there. And it's visually a very stunning piece of anime. And I think it's also, it was kind of groundbreaking when it came out because they used um, a type of um, computer generated animation that they hadn't actually used before in order to create a lot of the imagery and the movement in this. Yeah, uh, wildly considered one of the greatest anime films of all time, critics particularly praised the film's narrative score and visuals achieved through a combination of cell animation and CGI animation. What is cell animation? I do not know, but it's, you know, they did a combination of CGI effects and actually drawing mm -hmm. what they were doing. Um, which I think hadn't really been done before. Uh, the film, which had a budget of over $10 million, was initially a box office failure before it developed a cult following and started selling more on home video. Shout out Universal, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, AMC can suck it. No. <laughs> uh, just w once it got to a point where people could buy the DVD and watch it at home, it blew up and it eventually grossed $43 million in box office and home video sales revenue. Uh, so eventually became successful. It also inspired filmmakers such as the, Wach uh, the Wachowskis, if I'm saying that right, the creators of the Matrix films. Uh, and James Cameron said he's also been inspired by that movie. Um, and it, you know, you can kind of see some influences from the Matrix where it has that sort of tone to it. Uh, it I mean, this is obviously an animated film but I, I, I saw similarities. Once I read that it inspired the Wachowski brothers to create the Matrix, I kind of was like, I see it a little bit. I think they're, they're um, the Wachowski twins now. They're the Wachowski, yes. They were brothers at the time. They were. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a spectacular movie. 
it's the film is set in 2029 Japan, which weirdly enough is not too far off. Uh, so where's my cybernetic hand? Well, you know, the funny thing is when I was watching it and I knew that it was set in 2029, which, you know, they made it in 95. So, you know, that's not, that's a large chunk of time into the future, but not like a crazy amount of time into the future. Um, and, you know, I always find it fascinating when you go back and watch films that, you know, predict what now would be like. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're always, they always jump the gun a little bit, but we're still about nine years away from where this takes place. And if you think about how much, like when that came out, computers were still big boxes on your desk with a modem, a giant modem on the floor, um, instead of, you know, now we have computers in our pockets. So I don't know how far off it actually is. I don't think we're, we're nine years away from having like a cyborg police force, but. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't put it too far off because the military is certainly doing some experiments with cybernetic stuff. Uh, so actually when, when you become a, a Navy SEAL, they make you swallow a microchip, an RFID chip, that yeah, they used to basically do like an eye exam and a blood test. Uh, so when a Navy SEAL joins the program, they have to do this thing where they go underwater in freezing cold water and hold their breath and just be in it for as long as possible. And I forget what the time that you have to be in it and then pass, it's like you know five hours or something crazy. Um, and then they pull you out of the water. They used to flash a light in your eyes and they used to check your blood. And then they would be like, oh, this guy's going to die of hypothermia. Get him out of here. Get him to the hospital. Or, and then he would do it again the next, uh, next day or two days later. And you'd get better and better at it and better at it. And eventually they're like, five hours, he's not dying of hypothermia. He can be a Navy SEAL. Cool. Now, because obviously that's a little outdated. Now, they made it even easier. You swallow a little tiny microchip before you do the thing. So there's a microchip in his stomach now, or in her stomach, Navy SEALs. They go in the water, they pull you out, and they zap you with a little thing, the device that like electrocutes you a little bit, and it gets a reading on all your vitals, and it can tell you if this person needs to go to the hospital. So that is a thing that they do in the military with Where a microchip. Where did you this information from? I don't know if I, I believe I got this information from a reputable source. <laughs> See, See, I don't know. I'm going to look this up while we're talking. I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> okay. This is from the words of a Navy SEAL, retired. And I heard this off of Joe Rogan's podcast yesterday. So okay. I'm just taking his information and reiterating it exactly how he said it. I literally watched this yesterday. Um, oh, yeah, there's how whole, accurate that is. There's a whole article in Business Insider from 2015 that talks about how they use an adjustable thermometer pill to monitor core body temperature. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's really a matter of time until people are like, let me, oh, well, they're talking too about they were, they were going to have contact lenses. Google was working on contact lenses. You put in the contacts mm -hmm. and then you basically have a HUD system and you can see like your internet browser, you blink in this direction, you open up Safari. And you do a Google search and you say, you, you don't have a computer, you don't have an iPhone or anything, but you just say, uh, give me directions to this place. And an arrow pops up on your contact lens and tells you which way to go. 
that's part of it. That's that. I think that's getting closer towards being part cyborg because that's pretty. They have like the Google glasses or whatever that they were. Yes, those those failed horribly because they make you look stupid. <laughs> so you put these dumb looking glasses. You look like you walked out of the B-rated Star Trek movie, and everyone was like, "This is the future," and everyone was like, "No, I'm not wearing that shit." So our vanity as human beings may or may not save us from our over overlords and uh, Skynet, essentially. Well, we're going to see. Uh, <laughs> another fun thing, now that you brought it to Skynet, is I was watching, back in the day, uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was the TV series they did for the Terminator franchise. It was starring, like, Lena Headey was Sarah Connor. Summer Glaw was, like, this weird Terminator that came from the future and the whole thing I don't remember who else was in it but they had a different doomsday than the original movies because the original movies pushed back the doomsday or mm. they changed it so this was another timeline with its own doomsday and I was watching it and the new doomsday was like 2010 or 2011 or something October uh, let's just for example's sake say it was October 27th 2010 I was watching that episode where they said, the doomsday is October 27th, 2010. It's coming. I watched that on October 27th, 2010. And he said it, and I turned to my friend, my friend Danny and me were watching the series together. I turned to him and I was like, what fucking day is it, man? And he looked and we freaked out because we're like, today's the day, we're all gonna die. We put our phones down and we left without our phones and we went to get pizza. Um, <laughs> just to be without technology for a minute. I don't know. It was just so weird timing wise how that worked. It caught me off guard. That was one of the doomsdays that just came right up and passed over. It's like Y2K, you know, everyone thinks the world's going to end, but it's not real. Um, Terminator has changed when doomsday will happen, but they just keep postponing it. They can't seem to stop it because they obviously want to keep doing reboots and reruns and the new yeah. Terminator movie wasn't too bad. I didn't see it. It was, it was like, if, if we're ranking all the Terminator movies, I'm still partial to Terminator 2 being my favorite, Terminator 1 being my next favorite. This next one was probably my third favorite uh, out of the eight, eight, 12, 17 Terminator movies that exist. Uh, but to bring it back to Ghost in the Shell, Mm -hmm. uh, there's some comparisons, too, to the 2017 reboot uh, with Scarlett Johansson. Mm -hmm. I didn't personally mind it too much. I thought it was okay. I thought it was a pretty good 2017 reboot, you know. Uh, I understand all the whitewashing uh, controversy with Scarlett Johansson was a big deal, and mm -hmm. we talked about that a little bit with Clay, but um, I, didn't, I didn't hate the movie. I definitely watched the animated movie, and I'm like, this is better. I like this more. You know, I think it's it's hard when you try and, and transfer something like like we've talked about before on on different episodes. We try and transfer something from one medium to another. Um, you know, you have to completely you lose something from the original medium. Like mo I would say nine times out of ten, when something is made for a specific medium, like something is made for the the stage or for film or for television, nine times out of ten, that is probably the best medium for it when you try and change it you and and 
especially with something as be beloved as Ghost in the Shell is for the people who love it. I mean, anime, while it's still like a niche kind of group of fans, there's a lot of them. <laughs> they love it. This was, you know, a cultural phenomenon for them and a turning point for a lot of people. And when you try and change that, you're going to have people who are not happy with, you know, you lose certain things that the original had. While you might gain some ground in other areas, you know, I'm sure the visual effects were incredible in Ghost in the Shell and it was, you know, what they could do with like the futuristic version of, you know, Japan 2029 or I don't know if it was set in Japan, but, um, you know, it's, you, when you lose what originally made it so wonderful and made it made it connect to so many people then you know i think that's what makes people frustrated and and that's yeah. why you know people have a hard time not whitewashing roles aside because i'm sure too there were a bunch of fanboys that were like oh you mean this naked assassin robot that's running around with her boobs out the whole time you mean that's gonna be scarlett johansson and i get to see all that and then it wasn't like, I think it was PG-13. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of people were just like pissed they didn't get to see Scarlett Johansson naked. But uh, I hope that their frustrations with the movie were just based on <laughs> legitimate things. Mm. Um, now, the anime cyberpunk film Ghost in the Shell came out in 1995 based on the manga of the same name by Masumi... Masamune Shiro, I can't say the names. I just can't do it. I tried to, I rehearsed before the podcast, before we even started talking, I tried to say all these names. Yeah, I tried to say them too. <laughs> it's tough. Um, directed by Mamoru Oshii, mm -hmm. and stars the voices of Atsuko Tanaka, Akio Atsuka, and Imasa Kayumi. Uh, it's as close as I'm going to get. Um, it's all about Motoko Kusanagi, uh, who is a cyborg public security agent, and she's kind of questioning her own identity. She's wondering, like, you know, am I, like, who was I before I was this public security, cyborg super agent type of person? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that one scene when she's in her downtime and she went diving, she went scuba diving and her um, partner, who is also a cyborg, um, you know, was kind less of, of a cyborg, it should be noted. Less, yes, less of one. Um, was talking to her about why she does something that is so dangerous for her. She's such a heavy piece of machinery, you know, she could sink to the bottom. She, you know, she could die. She could, and they get into this whole conversation about what it is to be alive and conscious of who you are. And she said, you know, at what point if we, you know, we were science fiction just a few years ago. Yeah. And now we're alive and I know I'm alive. And, you know, she's like, but if you keep creating artificial life, at what point does humanity lose what what, what point does, uh, you know, being a human being lose what the thing that makes it special to be a human? Yeah. And I mean, the villain of the movie, who is known as the, is it the puppeteer? Was that his name? The puppet master. The puppet master. Uh, the puppet master, 
came out and basically said his grand plan was to find a way to die. And that if he could die, that means that he is, that's proof that he is alive and that he is a sentient life form and has achieved consciousness and all that. Uh, if he can't die, is he really alive? And that's really the question that yeah. he asks. Um, well, he said there were there are two, two questions or two things that prevent him, him for lack of, I mean, I don't think he, he really ascribed to a gender, but um, that prevented the puppet master from knowing that they were a living being is the ability to procreate and the ability to die. Right. And, you know, uh, the major, which was her nickname, um, she said that you can copy yourself, but Puppet Master's response was a copy is, is just that. It's an exact replica. To procreate, you create something new that has memories or genes or little pieces of yourself in it, but it's something new that then continues and that continues when they procreate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think at the end, spoiler alert, when um, the major and the puppet master merge essentially and become a new being, I was really interested to see what they were gonna do with that because they made the puppet master out to seem like this, you know, crazy, horrible terrorist, but the puppet master just wanted to be alive and know what it felt like to be alive. So yeah. now that they've procreated and created something new. He's basically, if Pinocchio went Super Saiyan, that's ba <laughs> You had to take a sip of water as I said that, yeah. Yes, thank uh, you for that. He just wanted to be a real boy. He just wanted <laughs> to get down with the major and create little major babies. And uh, what they essentially did was created this new entity that was this weird combination of the both of them mm -hmm. um that wasn't necessarily a copy of either one but it was something new so they procreated and i guess the idea came into being because they in doing this they both quote unquote died yeah so that proves that they are both real because i think major two was questioning her existence she was wondering am i was i a person before this was i created like this are all of my memories fake? Because remember, there was that one guy who they chased down. Yeah. And they had wiped all his memories and gave him fake memories. And he lived in an apartment alone. He thought he had a family. You know, it just makes you think, am I in the Matrix? Is any of this real? Are we hosting a podcast or are we sitting in a bubble being soaked in juices and our electric signals from our brain are being sucked out to power robots? <laughs> Just totally I, usually, I don't go full matrix on it. I usually end up thinking like, what game of the Sims am I in? Right. Controlling me right now. <laughs> Look, if someone's out there just programming me to record a podcast and then a countdown starts where it's like, this is going to take him two hours. He's going to be busy. And then they go off to the next person and they make that person walk their dog. And then they go to someone else and they make that person deliver tacos. You know, <laughs> whoever's playing the Sims of our lives needs to just stop with this coronavirus nonsense yeah. because i was uh i was watching suits so someone was talking about the game have you ever played the video game plague inc no so plague inc or plague plague incorporated but it's abbreviated the game it's essentially it's like a virus game uh where you get a map of the world and you say all right i want to start a this type of an illness or a virus or 
there's bacteria, there's virus, there's a couple different variations of it. You can specify how intense you want the uh, the severity of the of the disease to be, and how contagious it is, and all the variations of it. And then you just pick where you want it to start. And then you kind of just watch it as it goes. You can kind of like do research things and improve it. Uh, but the best way to be really good at that game is to start a virus that is extremely contagious and starts out super weak. Because if you have a virus that's too strong, the game is programmed to stop you. Because they're like, oh, there's people dying. Cure it. Cure it right now. Cure it. And they cure the disease. But if you have a disease that's super contagious and it gets to everybody and it's super weak, nobody really cares. They're like, we're infected with this thing, but it's, you know, it's giving me the sniffles. I'm not too unhappy. Uh, so the game doesn't really stop you right away. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you flip a switch and you make the virus stronger and then it kills everybody. And this game has blown up a little bit because it's been around for a decade at least. Um, and now it's basically the plot of the world today, which is <laughs> coronavirus, because yeah. it's a super contagious disease and it's hurting a lot of people, uh, which is pretty wild. But this game was essentially that. Um, yeah, Plague Inc. Give it a try if you can stomach it in this environment. <laughs> I dare you. I won't be playing that one anytime soon. I'm having a hard enough time playing the game Vampire that I'm playing right now because it takes place during the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. So. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, don't play The Last of Us either because The Last of Us is just straight up like there was a virus and turned people into these weird creatures. Mm -hmm. And it's basically one weird sci-fi step off of what 2020 is. Um, but still play The Last of Us because it's an awesome game. That game, the story is so good. I can't wait for the story. I hope no one spoils the story for me because apparently the spoilers leaked and all the spoilers for The Last of Us 2 are out there. Staying as far away from any of it as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, getting into the current events of the world today. Yes. Um, we have a positive current event. Cannes and Sundance. Uh, which are two very well-known film festivals, are going to be finding a way to stream some of their films on YouTube for free. Uh, so there's some entertainment coming your way, so keep an eye out for that from Cannes and Sundance. I think that's really cool of them. Um, that. You know, Tribeca was actually doing that with some of their shorts from the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. So I got to... Um, I met a, a filmmaker through uh, one of the classes and programs that I was taking. Uh, his name is uh, Matthew Bonifacio. And he, the first film he ever made went to Sundance. First film, right off the bat. So it, another short that he and his wife, they're uh, business partners and they have a production company. Um, they created this short called Master Maggie. If it's still available on Tribeca Films, please watch it. It's incredible. I just love that all of these companies are making these films available that normally would not be available. Like yeah. I, I had no way of watching Master Maggie unless I, I went to Tribeca, which I don't have the money for a pass to go to Tribeca. So, you know, it's, I, I love that festivals are doing this and, and these, indie films and you know more artistic films that normally would not be as palatable to mainstream sensibilities are getting out there so that we can actually see them and enjoy them yeah 
the the virtual festival is going to kick off on May 29th. Uh, I don't exactly know when this podcast is going to air, but May 29th until June 7th is when they're going to be doing this virtual festival. It's going to feature programming by festivals such as Cannes, Sundance, Toronto International, Berlin International, Tribeca, and Venice. And it's called the Sin System on Air. Um, it should be pretty cool. It's basically just a way to get films in front of people and have them see some cool content. Uh, I would love to have your friend who worked on this, on all these films that did really well. I'd love to have them on the podcast. So talk to I'll them. I'll be reaching out. I'll be reaching out. Sure. <laughs> uh, on a sadder note, a less happy note, uh, coronavirus filming won't start back up until 2021. Um, there's quite a bit of debate on here about this topic. Uh, this is according to a website called Project Casting. Uh, they're saying that, you know, studios aren't really going to be able to start filming again until next year. And we're talking seven months from now, which is just crazy. But it's also crazy to realize to, like, go back to filming stuff in person in groups of, in large groups. You know, it, it's hard to imagine doing anything in a large group right now. So. Well, I mean, these projects, they, opening you know, politics aside or, you know, whatever, opening up should be a slow process, a slow and safe process. And, you know, it's not going to be one minute we're in quarantine and the next minute we're back to life as it was. There's going to be a really slow, gradual progression back into it. And with the amount of people um, that it takes to put a film together, for the amount of people that it takes to put a show up on a stage, you know, it, it's a lot. And so there's going to be a lot of variations in how we start to get back into it. I think I saw an article, um, but I didn't have a chance to read just yet, that Mayor de Blasio in New York is talking with um, New York producers and, and production companies for, uh, trying to plan out steps forward for being able to get back into filming um, and get back into creating again but it's it's so hard to try and figure out how to do it in a in a way that is safe and economically smart. Because yeah. you have to adhere to all of these social distancing guidelines and all that stuff. You could take a process that it should only take like two or three weeks to film a certain project and you have to extend it out by so much because of social distancing guidelines and how many people you can have in, in one area at one time. Yeah. For anyone that doesn't believe that it needs to be that much more of an, a thing or it doesn't, you know, it can't be that many people on a film set at the end of your movie, watch the credits and just see how many people are involved. And obviously not all of those people are in one room at the same time, but you can imagine even in broken up groups, uh, where the special effects artists are all in one room or all of the camera people and all of the lighting people and all of the directors, producers, um, just PAs, just, you know, we're, we're, certain films, some of them can be small crews of maybe 10 people, maybe even less, you know, the smaller, smaller budgets, but even medium-sized films, the, when, when a movie studio is talking about getting getting moving, they're talking about cool, can we fit 50 people in a, in a room, even a big room, without compromising their health and safety? So 
it's tricky. I know filmmakers are going to be wearing masks for a little while. Uh, I think it's going to be tougher for actors who are still going to be asked to do things like make out with this other actor or or do this really complicated fight scene where you're jumping up against people and punching people in the face, putting your hands all up in their business. Also, you might get coronavirus from that, but you have to do it because it's your job. Filmmakers, at least the camera people can be like back here with a camera avoiding everybody and saying, because I, I have a video project that I'm booking at the moment where we're talking about doing interviews and stuff. Um, and we're like, cool, cool. I don't have to be anywhere near people. I can, I can film it from six feet away and get a longer lens and have it have some nice little depth to it and stuff. And that'll be how we do it safely. Um, so it's a lot easier for me because I'm doing small scale interviews with a couple people. I can't imagine doing this with a crew of 15, 20 people where there's lighting people and you got to interact with people. It's, it's too yeah. much. I mean, it's the only way that they can get back to any sense of normalcy with it is once they have obviously testing, constant testing and tracing, and they have some sort of, cause vaccines are, they take a long time to create. So that's not for another year or so. Um, but if they have, drug therapy that helps with this at least for so that if you do contract it you're it's not as life-threatening of a situation but until you have those things in place and the solid scientific proof that these that the drug testing works and constant testing to see if you have it antibody tests all that happy jazz you're not going to be able to get back to a sense of normalcy as far as regular uh creation regular projects regular filming it's just not going to happen yeah. Shout out, by the way, congratulations, because you just got tested because you're having a little minor surgery, but they had to test you in advance, mm -hmm. and you are corona-free. I am corona-free. Corona I'm actually pretty sure I already had it, but as of right now, I'm corona-free. So the test you took only told you if you have it at this moment, not if you've ever had it, because those are two different tests. You froze. Yeah. They have the antibody test available now. Oh. Correct. So the test you took uh, only tells you if you have the coronavirus, COVID-19, right now, not if you've ever had it. Right. That's a different test. That's an antibody test, um, which I don't, I think when we're getting ready to like open everything back up, I might, I might sign up to get one of those, um, but I'm not concerned. Was it expensive to get that test? Someone told me that you can get those tests, at least the one you did. Uh, for 200 bucks or something like that was it I don't think I'm actually being charged for it as far as I know um, it's Insurance a covered it. I think so I think there I mean and please don't take my word as law because I'm really not sure but I'm, I think in all of the um, laws that came out um, and bills that were passed for coronavirus relief and all of that stuff I think there is a law that says that the insurance companies will cover all costs of coronavirus testing. Um, but I am not 100% sure. This was also required as a safety measure before I go get surgery um, to make sure that anyone who comes into that surgical building, because you have to be close to each other for surgery, um, yeah. is safe and is not going to transmit the virus to anyone Especially else. Especially the doctors. If you get a doctor sick, they're talking to patients every day they're talking to sickly people that are just going to get more sick so I, I fully understand them wanting to be as careful as possible but congrats you're you're COVID free thank you <laughs> um 
bringing it back to film discussion stuff, uh, our final current event is back to the big argument between Universal and AMC. Universal has responded to AMC's uh, refusal to show their movies in their theaters when the theaters reopen up, and they basically just said, bet, bring it, man. Like, we're going to do what we do, mm-hmm. and you're going to like it. I mean, and they're not wrong. I mean... Yeah, I mean, they made so much money off of going straight to on-demand video with the Trolls thing, uh, the Trolls movie that came out. So it's hard to get mad at them for being like, that's where the money is. Sorry, your business isn't working out for you. Uh, But then AMC also had a valid point where they said, cool, just cue us in because we can't plan for stuff if you just snap and change your mind about how you're going to do your business with us. Right. Which is fair. That's a completely fair thing. And I think, you know, once hotter heads, you know, they'll calm down and then they'll actually be, especially as we get closer to reopening because AMC and movie theaters in general are not in a financial spot to really be able to say, Hey, Universal, even though you have Jurassic World Dominion coming out next year and Fast and the Furious and grew the Minions, you know, movie, they are not in a position to say no to those films being in their theaters. Those are big money makers. Those are the ones that people actually go out of the house and go spend a ridiculous amount of money on movie tickets to go see in the theater. I hope they say no to Gru, the Minions movie. I'm just so, I can't look at Minions. They creep me out. They're so weird. They're little yellow pills. Oh, they're so strange. I'd rather watch Jurassic World where there's like dinosaurs. That's cool to me. But it's crazy that these two are arguing, these two major companies. And, you know, there's nothing either of them can do about the current situation. They're just arguing publicly at this point. And I think Universal came to it with, a very professional response. I feel like AMC is being depicted as like the children here because of their very reaction. They just came with a very strong reaction to Universal saying what they said. Yeah, like why don't you just reach out to them and say, hey, why didn't you consult us? Yeah, uh, behind the scenes, rather than like having a Twitter war, but you know, that's how our country is run today. Yay. Twitter wars. Yay, we're uh, <laughs> Uh, well, this has been fun. I've enjoyed this episode. We talked about Clay Clement, his project, The New Normal. Uh, we talked about anime, and we talked about manga, animated films. Talked quite a bit about all that stuff. Yeah. Coronavirus is still dominating the world, still taking over, still preventing film from still happening, but we're seeing some changes. The curve is flattening. The world will be spinning again shortly, hopefully. I don't know why I started this inspirational speech, but here we are. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, You can follow us on social media. Like, follow, subscribe for all the upcoming information that we have. Absolutely. And thank you to our day player, Clay Clement, for coming on and talking about the new normal, his project that he's working on. Uh, If you want more information on that, you can reach out to him directly via the links below uh, and get involved with The New Normal because he's looking for people to be involved and create their own episodes. And if you want to stay tuned with us for future episodes, I'm Jim Delizia. And I'm Victoria Fragnito. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.